Welcome to the Creative Condition Podcast, the show where I, Ben Talon, illustrator and writer, invite people from the creative industry and far beyond to share their story of creativity, both the nature and the nurture, the chaos and the calm. Creativity is a fundamental pillar of human happiness, something I'm increasingly fascinated by. It is so often misunderstood. So little by little, I hope to build an archive of valuable stories, experiences and tips to help you maximise yours. Today I'm going to be talking personal passion projects, work that's been created from a pure place, either for love of a cause, interest in a subject, just some nerdy pleasure, and what it's led to, why it's taught me many times that I shouldn't actually be doing something and a great way of eliminating something that would otherwise take up a lot of time, or even open the door or take me on some winding new career path. Hello and welcome back to the show. My name is Ben Talon. I am your host. Big thank you right off the bat to the founding sponsor for this episode, Illustration X, awesome illustration agency representing animators, illustrators, set designers, lettering specialists, portrait artists, you name them, they've got them on the books. And um, in keep with the topic of today's episode, these guys are very passionate promoters of personal work and all the people on the books being their own artist and following their own uh, following their own nose and their own heart I guess is the way to put it I've been represented by them for over a decade now maybe 12 13 years and they've always been right behind whatever it is that I wanted to do even if there was no immediate gain for the agency they are just very up and attuned to the absolute need for us artists and creatives to be energized and be passionate about things and be interested in the world because like anything else, if we just plow all of our time and efforts into one tiny thing, it just kind of gets worn down and jaded. And um, that's big props to Illustration X for being just a little wiser and looking beyond the short term. So go and check them out over at illustrationx.com or we are Illustration X on the social media where you'll find many, many examples of these personal projects which are often promoted in the newsletter. And sent out to tens of thousands of clients to uh, hopefully bring in juicy work, which I'm going to talk about today, going through some of my own examples. Um, how have you all been? I hope you're well. Talking about personal passion, it's uh, it's an interesting time because, as I mentioned and kind of went on a bit of a rant a couple of episodes ago, it's challenging at the minute. You know, there's a lot of crap going on in the world. There's a lot of dark things happening, and I think it's it's often hard for us as sensitive empathetic people to to keep our spirits up in the way that we we might do when times are better and i know that it garners a kind of resilience or um, a backlash almost or a ferocious response to the things that we encounter but it's just not possible for all people because you know creativity is symbiotic with personality so like i said when we're low or when we're not feeling as passionate as we we otherwise might it's hard to do that and based on that sentiment i I did an episode going back a little while it was a two-parter you might remember it you might have heard it if you haven't i do recommend that episode and it's a the first part was with craig oldham graphic designer based in manchester originally from barnsley and we talked a lot about craig's work for example, the uh, the book he did on the the 1984-85 miners' strike in Barnsley, which you know he was a kid at the time, and his parents were on the front line of that strike, 
and it's pulling together all the graphics and the sentiment and the, the visual energy from that time and it's a it's a beautiful book which i felt at the time provided a great example of subtlety and craft and reminders you know it wasn't didn't feel like an angry book even though i know that craig is obviously rightly pissed off about everything that went on politically back then but it was done with finesse and artistry and what it did was brought together all of that visual language from that time in a cohesive manner and presented it in a way that was smart it wasn't in your face screaming it wasn't heavy-handed which anyone can be forgiven for lashing out during these times as you'll see on any social media platform but there are ways to do this in a kind of subversive um communicative way that always inspires me that i think is so clever and i did that episode and it was called what's the effing point and it was done at a time when i was feeling very low about things i was you know like everyone else under siege with covid and political uh, deceit and all kinds of things swirling around at the time and you know it's, it's hardly got any better has it with the war in ukraine and things since but craig and then on the second part of that episode dawinda bansal um who is an artist based in wolverhampton who does incredible work often channeling her own youth as a child of the first generation of South Asian people in the UK, you know, she'd moved to Wolverhampton with her family and this must have been something of a culture shock for her parents. And so she taps into a lot of the cultural surrounds of the time that she experienced. But the way that she tells it and the way that she shows just how effective and powerful a personal story can be, no matter how much we might often feel that you know why would anyone else want to hear about this this is just my circumstances i think there's great value to any of those stories as craig and dawinda showed and he really picked me back up because it reminded me that i didn't have to sit there all angry in my studio and start effing and blinding in typographic form or on a podcast you know this could be i mean of course there's you know validity there's absolute validity to that but i just thought that um dawinda and craig's examples were just very well done so i did that episode and it was as much a reminder to myself as it was to hope for the listeners that there is great power in the personal and that we do have a gift i'm, I'm drafting a new column at the minute which i'm going to be announcing soon a new uh, kind of opinion piece again creative condition and this is a part of the momentum to the, the book of the same title and it's kind of tapping into my feeling that there is no better time for us to use what I consider wizardry, which is visual communication and the power that has to change, to be transformative. You know, this can be at the, the heart of movements and pivotal turning points in history. And God knows we need a few of those at the moment on many fronts. But there are examples left, right and centre of people doing that. And I think in great numbers we really do have something that's going to become so crucial you know i think anyone who's aware of the police bill going through recently you know it effectively restricts our right to protest bit by bit our democracy is under attack whether we want to hear about it or ignore it or not and i just think that subverting visually and creating um statements this way it's gonna have 
and maybe more emphasis on it than ever because if we can't go there and be there in person and there's risk of arrest and the rest of it then there are other channels you know we have to use the internet we have to use our design skills and our artworks and the rest of it to give people a voice because with that taken away you know we're staring down a mental health precipice a chasm there opening up if we're not careful but not to get too deep i am um, I'm full of renewed optimism recently for examples like Craig and DeWinders and um, off the back of that one I went and did an episode numbers 147 and 148 for anybody who wants to go back and listen in the archive but it was a rundown of my kind of absolute favourite personal projects Um, so you can hear about Craig and DeWinders also on that one but there's loads of others and um, it's you know I wrote my dissertation on graphic activism but it's not all about activism. It's about following our hearts. And that's what I wanted to talk about today. I wanted to talk about a series of works over the years that I've created from some pure place or some, you know, dark pit of my humour that I did for me. Or maybe to make a friend laugh or something really shallow like that. That paid off in some massive way and kind of enhanced or stabilised or diverted my career in a whole different direction. And I've got a lot of those, and it was um, a friend of mine, Laura Bost, got in touch recently, who you'll know as um, used to be LJB Studio and is now Conscious Made, her wonderful design studio. And she got in touch, she left me these voice notes asking a few questions about personal work because she, she said she had me down as someone who's shown time and time again, you know, that just how um, how valuable they can be. And that stayed with me, and I thought, maybe I should run down some of the you know the examples that's either generated new work or has um, just done something positive because there is this whole chain link so that's what i wanted to do so what is a personal passion project i mean to me it's a create you know it's something that helps us find our creative compass be that stylistically directional or for fleshing out our identity because often we don't actually know that ourselves and if we just go straight into industry working on someone else's tab You can definitely learn your identity that way, but I believe it might take a lot longer because you're not following the things that are already inside you. You're applying them, but you're not following them. You're not leading with them. And I think when you lead with those and you pay attention and are honest about the results and how you feel, it very much helps to form our identity as a a creative professional, which is absolutely critical. Uh, it's a, you know off the back of that so it's, it's a key way to establish a unique identity in an industry that is absolutely vulnerable to trends um, and I've seen so many people follow the trends and I've done it myself in my early career only to end up in this place quite far from our own path going oh okay I'm not really feeling this anymore it doesn't feel like this is right for me and suddenly my work has been picked up by clients because of it being something that isn't true to me and I think that's got a shelf life and I've seen people burn out that way so you know i think these personal projects also give us a voice in times like this because we can turn to those skills and able to say something or to pull back a modicum of the power that we sometimes feel like we've lost when you know there's political deceit and there's tough times economically and the rest of it and it also allows us to lend a voice to important causes that we care about and and work through these insurmountable problems in our lives you know i think when there are things there that be it the climate crisis in, in my example or um, just a sadness over a certain thing or an upset or an anger I think it's a great catharsis to work through that and I, when I worked with Calm 
campaign against living miserably back in 2013 to create a campaign around the emotional benefits of artistic expression i very much saw that this applied to a lot of people you know and a lot of people were doing their thing as a job but it was also an important part of uh, getting things out of their head and addressing the things in their lives and I really do think one of creativity's biggest traps is to spend 100% of the time servicing the needs only of other people or clients. And yet we get paid, we need to get paid, of course. We have to keep our clients happy. It's absolutely, um, you know, the height of professionalism. But if we don't spend time raising the chances of getting where we'd like to be, then we do run the risk of burnout and fatigue because creativity is inseparable from our personality. And I do think that burnout comes from an emotional place, not necessarily a physical overworking place, you know? Like I mentioned on the previous episode, it was uh, Ollie Duffy Lee who was on a couple of episodes ago talking about marketing, said in one of his blogs that burnout, um, much to the contrary of most popular opinion, is not about hours worked. He said that he'd worked many, many blockbuster weeks and felt really good and energised doing so because he was in tune with what he was working on. But I think if the opposite can be said, it's the emotional detachment, um, overwhelming, all of that stuff that creates the burnout. So I think the personal passion projects help us to avoid that too. Because the reality is a lot of us have to spend the most of our time working for clients and it's not always so possible to work on client projects that we do care about like we do our own passions. So, you know, that said, um, it was Matt, Matt Essam who was on uh, a, a previous episode talking about his uh, work as a business coach and he, t- he asks a lot of his clients how many clients, for example, they can juggle at any one time. So he said to me, you know, if that number is uh, eight at maximum capacity, he said, I advise them to work with seven and treat themselves as the eighth client because if you don't, you don't move forward and you don't free up time to develop what you want to work on or keep moving forward in a way that's going to give you a chance of getting better work or more appropriate preferred work. So I do think self-initiated work can, you know, attract the work that we want to do when, when it's championed and shared. I've done that time and time and time again and always placed great value on it. And it's something that is a reason why I want to talk about it today. Like attracts like. And in an industry that's just so full of rich talent, clients don't need to look too far to find the right person for any given job. So by engineering our own opportunities, you know, it's um, it gives us a chance of being found when the thing comes up or gives us something to put in front of the right people to convince them that we're the person for that job. It was, um, we're going back uh, quite a few episodes now, but industrial designer Nick Chubb told me about portfolios. He said, if you if I can't see it, you can't do it. And I love that because while it's not literally true, there is great truth to that statement. Like I say, some clients can make the imaginary leap from A to C, but even those with that vision, will they will need... They will, um, they'll need to feel confident, you know, because they, ha- they often have to convince their client or their superior to buy into a certain direction uh, when there's money involved. Uh, customers' trust is at stake. So there's a lot of reasons for them to kind of go back into that shell. And if the thing that they're wanting from you is not in your portfolio, not that you can cover absolutely everything in it, but it does often mean that it's like, well, your, work, your stuff's nice, but can you do what I need you to do? So that's something worth thinking about. I think that's uh, great advice from Nick. I'm going to be talking to Studio Dotto, Studio Dotto founding member Danny Molyneux later this week about her own personal work because she's getting a lot of deserved attention at the moment. 
um, for her kind of powerful, impactful statements, typographic artistic statements. Uh, maybe that's not the best description, but they're, they're strong and they're brilliant. And one of my personal favourites of late was her um, If You Tolerate This. Oh, that was perfect. And it's like a zeitgeist. You know, it captures how we feel about so much bullshit going on at top level in governments and in corporations and this almost this tussle for power in the world because we're at a pivotal time you know there's another heat wave due in the uk this week and it's it's scary times because these are warning shots at best and uh, i don't want to talk about the dark alternative of that but i think work like danny's and uh, micah pernell's who do it's very it's like i mentioned about craig's and the windows earlier there's a positivity to it that overrides the anger and therefore gives the anger a more hidden valuable place within the work because you know if you tolerate this this is danny molyneux a friend of mine who i knew was a almost a personal brink you know angry with a lot of things being laws being passed and a lot of bullshit but created this bouncy vibrant positive piece and i just think that's a really clever juxtaposition there and it makes you second guess and it hands ownership over to the viewer so that's just one of many examples so i'm going to be talking to danny later this week for a guest episode on this same topic because i think it's high time that we tap down into these skills of ours and take some personal action um i was driving with my family to kent at the weekend and on the underpass i missed it but my wife laura spotted a bit of graffiti and it said Oh, I'm just one person. I can't do anything about that to change it, said 7 billion people. <laughs> I thought it was very, very good. Nail on the head stuff. Um, and then, again, we can make a difference and we should and we need to. So there you go. Um, go back and listen to the episode with Joe Brady, firefighter, if you haven't done. Trust me, it's a belter. It might seem a far cry from design and illustration if that's why you come to this show, but I think there are many lessons in different forms of creativity. And Joe set down a great example as a firefighter and um, just a very fun, tragic and funny episode about responsive crisis psychology and creativity. And um, it's one of the favourites I've ever done because it's quite the sidestep, but anyone who's a regular listener to the show will know that I love that. Um, so why am I telling you about my work again today? This is not an ego trip. This is because I found myself working on the Creative Condition Manuscript, a book to the same title of the show, a big, big, big plunge into creativity's behaviour and the nature of it and everything that I've observed subconsciously and consciously of my life, particularly over the last 20 years in art education and the industry. And I started to reflect on personal passion projects um, and... I'm going to put together a chain of examples that I hope will help you see the value of always making time to explore your own things without guilt, knowing how important it is. So I'm going to start back in... No, do you know what? I'm not. I'm going to start... I'm going to start sooner. So I was going to go to 2007, around the time when I was just putting the nuts and bolts together to get freelancing right at the start of my career. But I'm not. I'm going to leap back a little bit. And I'm going to regurgitate a story that I've told a number of times, but I hope if you've already heard it, you'll either enjoy it again or feel free to fast forward a little. But this is when I was at school and my only social armour at school beyond football, which too many people had, was my ability to draw. And I used to use that in a mischievous way because my uh, the humour in my work has always been prevalent from the day that I've, you know, from being in nappies and when I started drawing, I've always tried to kind of channel my sense of humour. 
So I created a portrait, a very offensive portrait of a teacher at school who was in charge of all things special needs and disabilities. And we never really encountered this teacher and because of his appearance, he had this kind of thin moustache and these little round glasses, very cruelly and, uh, you know, don't look back on that very fondly, but we were teenagers and we called him Weasel. <laughs> and I did a drawing of him to make some friends laugh and it was ridiculously caricatured, almost Ned Flanders level from The Simpsons. And I wrote these nicknames on it and all these little quotes, the things that he'd said to us. And a friend of mine at school nicked it from me and posted it through his classroom window. And I was terrified for about two weeks because it vanished from the inside of the windowsill. And I really wanted that to have been taken by a cleaner and got rid of. But I, knew, I just knew, I think, instinctively that it wasn't the case. Two weeks go by, five of us get summoned to his classroom. And we're kind of arranged in this, like the, like the number five on a dice. I'm back left corner and we have to write according to these bullet points on the whiteboard, things we knew about certain misdemeanours. Uh, so I covered a couple of little bits in a really cursory, non-committal way. And at the bottom I put, I know nothing about the drawing. And I always remember him calling us over and he looked down my sheet and he went, he looked up at me and he went, you're lying boy, I've seen your artwork, I know that you can draw. And he just kind of parked it there and he sent us all back to our class and we were all nervous wrecks. And a little while later, somebody came to my classroom and um, said, can Ben Talon come to, uh, I'm not going to name names, but this teacher's room. So I just staggered my way over, stiff-legged, shaking like a leaf. And he called me in and, um, and he said, right, he said, okay, look, the, the drawing you did is brilliant. It's on my fridge at home because my wife finds it so funny. But you using your talents like this is maybe not the best use of them. So what we'll do, and be no further punishment, there'll be no more conversation about this drawing, if you're prepared to design me a poster for a talk I'm doing on dyslexia. And I couldn't believe this. And I look back on that with so much respect now, because he was very cleverly just re-diverting my mischief in a channel that was going to be give me some value as a human being and perhaps even professionally as time's gone on turns out to be the case and i love that i think that's that's teaching masterclass and i just wish there's a little bit more of that in um in the world at large a little more forgiveness and patience to understand characters and why people behave a certain way i really think we'd have a better society if that was the case but that was way back in about 1996, 1997, a couple of years before I got the first taste of something that I thought I might want to do as a career when, like a lot of people, I'd just been wandering in the dark without much of a clue until that point. Um, so that was the first example. And I do call that a personal project because I was doing that for years before that happened and I did get myself in trouble and continue to do beyond that because I just always found it funny. But that was a great example and the first taste I had of using that work for something good. And I just think if I hadn't been doing that, I wouldn't have had that encounter and things might have been different. So there you go. It doesn't mean that the act was right. It was still offensive. It was still very harsh of me to call him those names. I know that now. But that's learning life, isn't it? And that's teenage. Teenage dumb, if that's a thing. But there we are. So on to the career stuff. So 2007 was a pivotal year for me. So basically I struggled after university. The first six months were very, very tough. Um, and there wasn't a lot 
going on. I mean, so for context, I was working at Waterstones Bookstore and I was full-time in Goods Inn. It had gone from a part-time weekend and occasional weekday job while I was studying in my final year on an illustration BA honours degree at Preston at UCLan University of Central Lancashire. And suddenly I'm full-time. I'm no longer on the shop floor, so I've lost a great deal of the buzz in that job that made it a very fun part-time job. And now I'm underground, thankfully with a guy called Dave Smith who was just... um, great foil there's this really great sense of humor and i do remember dave turning around to me one day cutting me off mid-sentence when i was prattling on about my illustration and saying can i be frank with you and he said when are you going to get on and do it stop talking about it and it kind of rocked me you know almost back on my heels a little bit and i remember going do you know what thank you for that you're absolutely right and i think it's time i stopped messing about so for context messing about was sitting on a b&q garden table in my bedroom and I always remember sitting there and the rain hitting the window pretty hard and just struggling I, I'd, I'd really suffered from the the cutoff of tutorial input of peers and studio space and the energy and project deadlines and all of a sudden I was just kind of this smoldering wreck without any real direction apart from these kind of half-assed sketches what I thought my work was going to look like and it wasn't working for me you know and I was banging my head against a brick wall and I would I would sit there some evenings and just try and force it and I was copying the trends that were going on in the Guardian and in cool magazines that I would have liked the idea of working for and it was just stiff and wooden and it wasn't going anywhere and then we got a studio and when I say a studio I use that very loosely And we ended up in an old, it was called the stables, quite literally it was a a former horse stable that had been previously used as a car garage. And now five of us moved into this place, 40 quid a month, freezing cold, big two inch gap at the bottom of these metal doors. And it was magic. We loved it. It changed everything for all of us. Suddenly we had some belonging again and we had a buzz and we had a place to come and call our workshop. So this was in early 2007 and things changed. Suddenly I was making work again. I was coming in. By this time I I'd switched jobs and I'd gone to... Hang on, let me get my timings right. No, 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 no. I was still at Waterstones for a short while. And then I went to Preston City Council and worked as a recycling officer. Ended up walking out on Waterstones. It was a bit of a, you know, it was one of those kind of personality clashes and... More just owing to my frustrations, I think, my, my inner frustrations, really, that I wasn't making any progress. And I was by no means stuck in a job because it was a great job as far as full-time jobs go and some, some you know great people I'm still friends with to this day. But I found that I landed in this studio and, and I suddenly I felt competitive again. And not directly against the guys I was sharing with, but I was surrounded by people with purpose once more and it just reignited my passion in a great way. So I then went through this period of kind of creating work that I knew wasn't right deep down, but I persevered with because I'd built a portfolio. And I'm sure a few of you guys will relate to this where you've spent so long doing a thing and that's what you've built. So you stick with it because it's easier than tearing it all down or burning it all down and starting again. Um, but I implore any of you who are feeling that way to just to do it, wreck it, 
start again. You can change your life. You can change your entire career. It doesn't have to be a change of just an artistic style. I think some people labour for so long because this is just what they've chosen to do or what they've, you know, accrued debt studying for. When really, I think, you can you can flip that on its head. You can change wildly. There's nothing holding you back other than your own inhibitions and kind of societal pressure. And, of course, income and everything comes into it. But you can always do a U-turn. You can always do a whiplash turn. And that's kind of what I did with my style because after the stables, I arrived in a different studio in a place called Oyster Mill in Preston. And I remember moving in with Danny Allison, who was who had been illustrating for about two years. He'd left uni on the year above me, and he just jumped in, sink or swim, doing jobs for 20 quid, 100 quid. He got a couple of nice ones. And I remember bumping into him in the street and going and looking at a studio he had at the time on Fishergate. Yeah, Fishergate in Preston, above a shop. They knew someone that knew someone, these guys. And the work he was creating was really cool. He had real clients. And I remember looking at it and just being green with envy and going, I've got to get this. And I would pop in and see Danny and we'd become good friends. Uh, we, we sort of started a friendship at uni. Long story short, Danny turned around to me one day and he said, answer me a question. When did you stop drawing? Because this collage stuff, it just isn't there. And there's people out there doing such better stuff than you. But your drawing was second to none. And I don't know when you stopped it or why. And it was only when he said that that I realised I didn't know either. So I started drawing again. And suddenly this humour connection that Danny and I had just gave birth to the weirdest line drawings. Simple and stripped back with a minimal colour. And I was doing that mainly out of fear because I was terrified of colour. And I just hadn't cracked the use of it. Technically theoretically, in any way, shape or form, really. But the work I was making was making me laugh, or it was social comment, or it was about something I knew about, like football. Um, and that brings you to my first example. So my first client off the back of what was a period of just making a portfolio through nothing but passion, through building from the ground up. And one of the first kind of tangible things within that portfolio that I was making was these little topical illustrations. And I did it because I got a positive response from When Saturday Comes, which is uh, halfway between a glossy football magazine and a fanzine. And they had a great mag. I'd seen it in the university library and I was desperate to do something because I just felt such a synchronicity with my style, the, my, you know, my sense of humour, the way I see the world, my personality. And that, you know, it's always going to be your biggest driver of creativity. Never forget that. And I started creating these little topical illustrations once I got a positive response from the art director at the time. It was called Doug Cheeseman. And Doug was magic. He would always reply, he would always give me encouragement, and he always promised me that he was thinking of me. And it felt like the closest thing I had to a breakthrough. And lo and behold, it was my first commission. And it, I think it was putting together these samples, and I would even go as far as to drop them very crudely, because I'm not a graphic designer, into the editorial and send them. And I did this at the same time with The Guardian, who also responded quite positively. And I just, I did this because I felt that there would be an appreciation that I had taken the time to show some love for a specific magazine. Now, for anyone who listened to the recent episode with Ollie uh, Duffy Lee, he talked about the value of just making work and sending it to the clients you want to work for. And it's not about working for free because you're initiating this and you're forcing the issue, showing them what you know you can do, because it goes back to also what Nick Chubb said, if I can't see it, you can't do it. 
Again, not strictly true, but in this case, it paid off massively for me. So I was doing this work that I knew about. I'm a big football fan. I knew what was going on, and I just gave it my own twist. And by making that work, it got my foot in the door. Suddenly, I had a client that people knew and had heard of him when Saturday comes. Um, and what did that lead to? That led to the Guardian Sport. So, which takes me to the next one, which was also around that time, 2007, 2008 suddenly with this friendship now with Danny Ellison and this, you know, bizarre, fucked up senses of humour that we both had, it went a bit crazy and there was all kinds of madness going on. There was, and we call it illustration. so it was, again, it was just us going after the things that pissed us off, showing love to the things that we were, we were affection of. And I created the Versus series. So it started as an in-joke. So what was beautiful about this stripped-back line-drawing style was the immediacy of it. It was done very instinctively, which meant it was very quick without a compromise to quality. And people were buying into this kind of unfinished um, mistake of the human hand aesthetic. And what I started to do with that was make these kind of wrestling style, old school boxing posters. Because I just love that era of um, big typographic boxing posters where the verses is just massive. And you've got these names and these stars all over this pay-per-view event. And there was just something that I found very sexy about that. So I started to create these daft posters, and the first one was the Race versus Sex Challenge. And this was in reference to Barack Obama going up against Hillary Clinton for the um, Democrat candidate for the presidential election. And everything on the radio was about how Hillary would be the first woman in power and Barack would be the first black man in power. And while that was massive and obviously awesome, Something just rankled with me that I, I wasn't getting a bit more about the policies. So I just did this really naive, quick poster drawing Barack Obama, Hillary Clinton versus, and I called it the race versus sex challenge. And again, it was very, it was kind of on the edge. It was fun. It was funky. I loved what I did. It took me about 15 minutes to do. But by this point, I had real confidence in the um, the speed and the urgency of that work. And I sent that to The Guardian. And I remember... Um, going to see Roger Browning, who was the direct, design director way back in 2008. And Roger, for anyone who's read Champagne and Wax Crayons will know this story, but I called Roger up and I must have caught him at a really busy time and it was a cold call on the phone. And I went, hi, hi, uh, you know, in a really nervous voice. Went, hi, Roger, uh, it's Ben, uh, Ben Talon. Have you, have you got a second to speak? And he went, no, I don't have a second to speak. See you later. Boom, phone, hung up. Bang, gone, smashed, destroyed, just... A wreck. <laughs> I remember going home that day and being like, oh, the bastards, you know, like, they're the, what about me? But the truth was, he was a busy man and he got bombarded with hundreds of people contacting him every day. And there's cheeky little shit me, like, ringing up and just putting him on the spot. And I wasn't having it. So I remember um, calling back and picking what I thought might be quite a time. And I get put through. And I'm nervous by this point. And Roger's going, bye, Ben. Yeah, I'm so sorry. Uh, sorry about the other day. It was just mad busy. It's how things are in the newspaper. If we answered everyone that way, we'd never get anything done. How about coming in for a coffee? And I couldn't, you know, I, I couldn't speak. I was speechless. And this was like, this was the Guardian. This, they were on such a pedestal for me at this point. And Roger invited me in. I did a week in London, staying at the, the Hootenanny in, Brist in Brixton. For anyone who's been there, yes, there's a hostel above it. Yes, it's awesome. And yes, the nights downstairs are brilliant. And um, I spent a week in a in a 10-bed dorm, 14 quid a night, running around London. And I went to see Roger. And he told me that 
he absolutely loved the race versus sex challenge. He loved he loved the aggravation there. He loved the energy, and it would keep me in mind. Um, and about a few months later, he gave me a commission for the front cover of the film and music section, and I hated it. I was so nervous. It was stiff. It was awkward, but it, we just about got it over the line. And three days later, I get a call from Gina Cross, who was the art director in the sport department at the time. And basically, Roger had put in a good word. He said he'd just done a cracking job for me. He threw me right in in the deep end, front cover on a Friday. I, you know, I always believed I'd be put there with a little spot illustration where it's low risk. And it wasn't the case. And while I felt like I'd fucked it up because it wasn't my best work, in hindsight, it wasn't terrible. And it was editorial where there's more opportunities because there's less risk. You know, we're not talking about a year's advertising budget here. So... Gina said, I did a good job for Roger. How are you fixed the next couple of days? I've got a job for the Guardian Sport. He told me you're into football and you do cool stuff for when Saturday comes. And I worked for the Guardian Sport for about four years. I ended up working for Russell Brand's column and um, still do the occasional bit for the Guardian, not for the Sport for a long time. A um, number of reasons, budget cuts and the likes. Wouldn't rule it out. Things come back around, I've learned in this business. But that was awesome because this was work that I was creating that at times, I would put my pen down and go, what am I doing? Like, this is so bizarre and, and ridiculous. And who's ever going to like it? Who's going to look at it? What does it mean? It meant a lot because it resonated and the personality came through. And it was one of the biggest lessons I've ever had. Um, so that work not only led to The Guardian off the back of When Saturday Comes and the Versus series, but as the Versus series evolved into now 2009, I kind of drew a line under the series, boxing it off with Tyson versus Thatcher, which was just so ridiculous. Maggie Thatcher, former Conservative Prime Minister in the UK versus Mike Tyson, one of the most vicious, awesome boxers in history. But again, it was just tapping into that hatred of Conservatives that I picked up on in Manchester for you know historic political reasons, and Mike Tyson. And I just thought, do you know what? Let's just throw these worlds together and do something outrageous. Do you know? And that was what it was. And it was this rough poster. It was my favourite drawing, actually, from the whole series, I think. Maybe close to the Race versus Sex Challenge. And I got involved with an exhibition in London, which was called Decked. And it was a lot of artists doing original artwork on skateboard decks. And it was put together by Vicky Newman at the time, who's a lovely illustrator. And I, I think she's still working at Paper Chase. I might be wrong. And Lisa Goodall from uh, Inky Goodness, and they invited me to be a part of it because they, again, this is going back on the personal thing, they'd seen a feature in computer arts on some other personal pieces that I'd done at the time, which was a parody on like OK and Hello magazine, and I could go on all day, so I'm not going to get into that. But they'd picked me up for the exhibition off the back of that. And one of the people who came down to the exhibition was Mark Rader, who was a director at Channel 4. And I quite quickly became friends with Mark, and um, and he loved the the raucousness of this work. And the first thing he said to me on the night was, I love the Tyson versus Thatcher. It made me laugh. I haven't forgotten about it since. And, um, and I do work on TV trailers and there's something I might have you in mind for. Let's chat. And me being me, I'm just like, oh, this could be my first job outside of editorial. Um, yeah, okay, how are you fixed? tomorrow or the next day we could do lunch dinner and mark started laughing he was like i like that okay 
why don't you come round to my, uh, I think Paolo was his partner at the time, and, and he said, uh, or, or married, I forget, sorry Mark if you, if you hear this, he said, um, come round, have dinner with Paolo and I, and we'll have a chat, and it was awesome, and we went round, and he said, look, I've got an idea, it's for skins, coming up on, I think it was the third season, and he said, we need something uh, edgy and cool, I'll pair you with uh, someone experienced, and he paired me with Mike Maloney from Art and Graft Studio, who's a fantastic motion graphics animator, and he held my hand through the whole project. But it was my first job working on this 30-second Sting TV trailer. And I loved it. And it was it, because it came off the back of this Tyson versus Thatcher, this uber-personal, raw job. That's exactly what we did for Skins. And the shoe fit. And it was simple as that. And Mike did an awesome job with it. And I just thought, this is brilliant. Like This crazy little project that I've done has just opened so many doors. And I can't tell you the amount of times that I um, second-guessed that project. Bear with me, swing of coffee. So, going into 2009, so I'm in Manchester by this point, and that's when I did that job. And it didn't take long for me living with a guy called Danny Skerritt, who now DJs, produces, and is also a musician as Dirty Freud. He does the music for this podcast. Um, Danny and I just about knew each other from kind of crossing over playing football at university. We moved in, we took a punt on a flat in Manchester because it was affordable it was in wally range in south manchester and we had the best time two young lads living together full of uh, beans in the in this new city with a new energy and danny had been put off being involved in the music industry by a teacher at school who told him that gary newman wasn't real music which still makes me laugh to this day but it, it damaged his confidence at the time and he did this big roundabout journey through creative writing at university and working in theatre and playwright and all this cool stuff. But by the time we lived together, Danny had kind of gone back to his roots. So his mum used to roadie for Iron Maiden and that's what he did with her in the six-week holidays from school. And then his dad had this rich music taste too and they would compete over Danny's kind of musical affections. So he ended up with this amazing education in music. So by the time we lived together... He used that education to get out into Manchester, to hit the pubs, to find out where the open mic nights and the live music was going on. And he sat in a corner and he wrote it up and he did this crummy little blog and he called it Quenched. Now, we told people for so long that it was all about quenching the creative desires and inspiration and your need for new music and all this stuff. Real reason was he was getting paid in beer. He would get free beers while he was reviewing these people and, and he would, you know, he would give the, the, the pubs and the venues a, a shout out on the blog. And that's where I plugged in. So I saw him doing this and I wanted to be a part of this. You know, I wanted to be designing album covers and the rest of it and gig posters. And we went on this big journey where we learned and we didn't ever really have a plan. We just offered what we did to independent musicians and venues and events. And we just got involved in so many things. And it's one of those industries where if you talk to people and you ask and you be cheeky and you bully your way in, it's amazing what can happen. So for me, as an illustrator, I'm suddenly taking on this art director role, this creative director role. I call myself a million different things in that, you know, vehicle, quenched music that we set up. It was quenched unsigned for a while, and then we thought that sounded a bit amateur, so we, we flipped it to quenched music, and we put a night on at Factory because we didn't have any experience in doing so, managed to talk our way into it, and for that reason, we called it No Right To Be Here. I designed the posters, I had free reign to do these brilliant things, to dip my hand into my back pocket and pay a few friends 100 quid to do some cool different illustrative style stuff for a one-off poster and it was just such fun and we, we did an open mic night called Acoustic Broth where we had Ray Morris, we had Jake Bug come and play, we had Marky e. Smith, we had people from the Coral, it was just 
a scene at Gulliver's to hang out. And we loved it and we got so much out of it. And it just opened so many doors because we were thinking on our feet and Danny was learning to do the sound engineering because we didn't have the money to pay anybody else. And I started interviewing people because we didn't have the money to pay anybody else. And the restriction within that project just got these creative responses out of us that I don't believe we would have done in any other way. And I did a talk at my old university recently and the theme, it was the UCLan conference week um, where they get a lot of people from the design industry to come and talk to students about their experiences. And every year they have a brilliant theme and it's left open to the speakers to interpret. And this year it was close but no cigar. And I loved that. And I chose to feature Quenched because on the face of it, it never became anything. You know, we, we had a cool website because we knew good designers and web developers. And of course we had my own skills and friends who were graphic designers. So everything we did looked good. Danny knew his music, so we found all these new bands and got them on board. And, you know, we put together all kinds of projects. So it looked like we knew what we were doing. And for a while, there was this talk going around that we were the bright new thing for new music. And it was never going to be the case because we were far too amateur and uh, having fun to do that, really. But we believed we could do it. We thought we could be whatever we wanted. We thought we could be the enemy. We thought we could be Q with bolts on, whatever you wanted to call it, we could do it. But what happened was, through all those conversations... That's where Danny started to learn how to DJ. He would speak to venue owners that he knew. And in return for some of these write-ups, they would let him in the venue to practice on their decks. How cool is that? And through this, you know, he managed to get discount to learning Logic through Apple. And that's how he became Dirty Freud. And I love all that. And it all happened because he challenged the DJ at Factory and said, I can do this better than you. And the DJ said, yeah, all right, okay, mate, we'll put your money where your mouth is if you're a bit pissed and come back in a month. So Danny came back in a month and I remember him sitting there with his hangover the next morning going, oh God, I've messed up. You know, I can't do what I've said I can do. And I said, yeah, you can, get out there, do what you do, you'll learn it. And he did, and it was awesome. And he played Glastonbury the other year and he just play, finished playing the Dots Festival. And, you know, he's playing to like thousand strong gigs now and stuff and it's only getting better and he's a part of a new band and he works at, uh, well, I've just finished, I think, working up at Spirit, no, Spirit Studio. Yeah, Spirit Studios in Manchester. It's fascinating stuff. So that's what he got out of it. What I got out of it, uh, we both worked together on a project called The Lost Generation, which was an independent film that a, a director called Mark Ashmore was putting together in Manchester. So Danny did the music score for that. Again, opportunity because Mark didn't have a budget. It, it was a kind of micro budget next to no budget. Where the actors did it for experience. We all were just part of this project where the film was pretty cool. And... I asked Mark if I could be the art director or be involved with the art direction and he said to me, yeah, if you want, I don't have an art director, I don't have a budget for an art director, but if you want to come and hang out on set and you can help out, by all means, go for it, we'll make you some brews, <laughs> we'll feed you a little bit. And um, I met some brilliant actors and I loved hanging out on that set and learning how it all worked. And again, working out of my own back pocket, I bought some lining paper banners from um, B&Q. And these things were like three quid, really rough paper. And I created these kind of angry, not angry, um, instinctive, again, going back to my style, these hand-lettered banners. Um, and they had these kind of uh, almost anarchic um, statements on them. You know, it was counterculture kind of stuff. And the film was only ever very average. We were all learning. We were all very new to the game. And I almost didn't put the project in my portfolio because this was the first thing that I did that was three-dimensional, that lived off of a 2D environment. Now, you know, it was lit. 
I designed the whole set, I bought the props in, I didn't have a clue what I was doing with any of it, but it looked kind of cool, it was different, it worked for the film, and in the end, I stuck it, tucked it away on my, on my website. And do you know what that led to? That led to my dream client, WWE, World Wrestling Entertainment. I'm a huge wrestling nerd, have been since the age of about five. And I remember getting a call from Dave Hilton, who was the creative director for the magazine and website at WWE at the time. And David thrown me in with a couple of little projects, like a portrait for the kids' magazine of The Rock. And I remember Dave calling me up and going, right, I've just been browsing your website and I've come across these awesome banners that you've been doing. Tell me about the project. So I told him about the project. And he said, how do you feel about creating 15 of them for me for all the villains in the wrestling for a big feature that we're working on for the next magazine called Faces of Evil? And I'm not joking. I, it wasn't a case of falling off my chair. I almost went through the wall. This was, for a lifelong wrestling fan, this was dream project. Because this was sitting behind the wrestlers, lit, photographed by Marius Bugger, feature written by John Mihaly, who's the editor of the magazine at the time. This was stuff I've been reading for years and seeing the work of these guys and just slavering over it. And again, I'd been sending samples to Dave once. I added him on LinkedIn just out of the blue. Um, and he always got back to me going, appreciate the effort. I love that you're watching the TV and you're coming up with ideas, Will. You know, I, I will try and uh, work you in. He said, you'll have to bear with me. It's a big corporation and they move slowly accordingly. But true to his word, he got me the little spot illustrations and then bang, this feature that ran over about 14 pages. Decent fee, one of the best editorial fees I've had. And, you know, a little feature on me in the magazine and everything. And this is just dream stuff. And that came from a job that I did for free, but I believe it's the right kind of free work. It's a skill swap. It's a collaboration. It's voluntarily getting involved with something that I didn't know how to do. I learned on the job and it got me my dream job. And I've done those sets for various things since I did a Premier League um, trailer for Arsenal versus Man City, where I painted Arsene Wenger. And at the time it was Manuel Pellegrini, the two managers. And I was filmed in a derelict house in Peckham. And this stuff just... Again, this is just evolving the passions and it's bringing work that I'm passionate about because they're seeing it and going, well, I hadn't thought of that. Well, that looks good. We'll do it. Let's have some of that. How much do you want? And it's, it's the greatest buzz. So that's what happened with the Lost Generation stuff. And do you know what? It's given me stability in the long term because that was the beginning of Dave at WWE commissioning me to do hand lettering over photography. And he saw the stuff on the banners and he commissioned me for a poster of John Cena. And then he commissioned me for a double page spread for The Rock. And off the back of those projects, he said, you, you know, you, you've got a natural style with this lettering. And I struggled to find that style because it's more punk than the kind of twee or polished or finessed hand lettering which there are people like Kate Forrester who do that so so well and I could never dream of doing that because it's just as a haphazard clumsy person that's just not me and if I try it falls apart but this punkier stuff this stuff that comes from a, a very almost aggressive style that's different altogether and Dave said look he said I can't find people who are good at doing this but you are and if you build a portfolio if it's something you're interested in doing more of I think you can make money and get more work this way. And now it's a big part of my portfolio. It's probably give or take half of the jobs that I get these days. And I love that because I need variation. I've got the kind of flitty brain that needs the next buzz, you know? Anyway, so we went on to, to work on Portal. 
So off the back of the last generation, Mark was able to get funding on Portal, which is a six-part web series, and it was called... Um, I can't remember the subtitle. Anyway, Portal. Portal. Sorry, keep dropping my teeth. From Yorkshire. <laughs> and again, we had a great cast and crew. We worked for six weeks on this project. And do you know the biggest thing I learned from this? I learned that art direction in film was absolutely not for me. This project almost broke me. It was brilliant, it was fun, but it was exhausting and it was all encompassing. And the level of thinking on your feet, under stress, on location. And bear in mind again, there was a, we had a budget this time, but it was a small budget. We got funding from Film Yorkshire, we filmed a good part, good part of it in Yorkshire and also in Manchester. And I was out of my depth for a lot of that. I paid a friend, Kev Bannon, who now works as a digital media teacher at school. And Kev came in, bless him, and gave me like three, well, whatever it was, four of his weeks for something daft, like 300 quid. And we just dragged around so many props and uh, pieces of furniture to make that project happen. And it was pretty crazy because we should have really had a team with us, but that's the way it works in indie film. But what I realised was that I, I'm way happier bringing my specialism to it. So as far as the banners go, or designing the film poster, deal me in. I would love to work with someone who's more experienced in that world and is better catered for in terms of their personality. But it just wasn't the case for me. And this got really driven home when a little while later, after I'd started my, uh, it was then a Rest All Mimics podcast, now obviously the creative condition, I went to interview Annie Atkins, and Annie was kind enough to invite me over to Dublin uh, to sit in, in on a graphic design film workshop. And I just always remember hearing Annie uh, break down the job that she was absolutely perfect for. And there's a reason she's working for Spielberg and Wes Anderson and just doing it so well. And with such a lovely personality and, and she's just so multi-talented that this was, um, it was hers and it could never be mine. And there's a great relief that comes with eliminating something that you could potentially end up wasting a lot of time and money and effort and mental energy on. And I was just happy to leave that behind, you know. And I've done bits for kind of short films with like BT. I worked on a Jason Robinson film where they brought my illustrative style in. And I'm so much happier bringing my specialism to the table. So that was Paul. And that was one of the bigger lessons I've had. And I think it's a lesson that you should kind of seek to a degree. So don't put too many restrictions on yourself. If something feels good, get stuck in. But pay attention to the same feelings if you don't like where it's going or if it rubs you the wrong way or it stresses you out too much. Because there's great freedom in eliminating a few things and it frees you up to find the things that, you know, the path that you need to be on. So that's where things were at. And that brought me kind of more or less to the end of my stay in Manchester. So I get to London and I move to Bermondsey. And I'd written countless blogs by this point because I had these long quiet spells and um, but actually portal happened while I was on this quiet spell which is why I was able to work for six weeks on it but I wasn't really earning and it was stressful and I felt you know I, I know and I know now with 14 years experience that these quiet spells happen and they happen a lot and it's part and parcel of the game but back then I felt you know I got resentful I was like why is this happening to me after all this time Ugh, look at me <laughs> and what it meant was I went onto Tumblr and set up a blog and I just ranted and prattled on about the realities of freelancing and why oh, Instagram is you know it's the glamorized highlight reel don't believe it some of it's true but we're all pissed off and we're all skin and all this stuff 
But after a while, I objectified these rants and I turned them into something more positive. And that became Champagne and Wax Crayons, Riding the Madness of the Creative Industries, which was my debut book, non-fiction account, a brutally honest account of turning creativity into a career through the eyes of an illustrator and artist. But ultimately, something, if you don't know me, you don't care about me, which was about 90% of people, uh, it's one man about, 99.8% of people probably, you would still get it and you would relate to it and you could plug in your details, your nuances, and it would hold up as a story, as a relatable story. That's what my angry blog rants became. And fortunately for me, when I met my now wife, Laura Hawkins at the time, she was working at a boutique publisher. Um, no, I tell a lie, she left the job and she ended up at a boutique publisher called Lid in London. And David Woods was their editor at the time. And I'd also worked for David because Laura and David had worked together at Haymarket on the magazines that I used to illustrate for. And David said, oh, that's cool that he's you know writing this stuff. I like the sound of it. And he like he read a couple of excerpts and he liked it and he said get me to send me the get him to send me the manuscript. So I cobbled together this draft manuscript and it was pretty flabby. And a couple of times it was wider the mark, but there was passion and soul in it and all those negative emotions that I was feeling as a freelancer had great value. And David said, I love it. I love it. I think uh, later, you know, they take a chance. They're primarily a business publisher, but they will take a step into the unknown sometimes. And I think I can sell you in. Are you interested? Weirdly, initially, I said no, because I didn't feel like I was ready yet. I didn't feel like, you know, this was something people would want to read. So I worked on it a bit more and thought, you idiot. <laughs> Go back and see if you're still interested. So I did. And I got a deal. And it wasn't the greatest deal. The money was, you know, not great in terms of I sort of, there wasn't much of an advance, let's put it that way. And they held my hand through the whole process. Again, I was very new to this. And while there are things I would change, and that's why it's now an indie book, because the contract expired, expired even though, you know, on the whole, it was fine. Some things good, some things bad. But it led to lecturing opportunities about creativity, workshops, a Japanese translation, which was just something I, I hadn't even dreamed about it, let alone, you know, something that might happen. But I got a transla translation with EG Press in Tokyo and got a book tour out of it. I got commissions in Japan because of it. And I've done so much more writing since I've done a column for Design Week. I've done work for Creative Review, for Digital Arts, for Creative Block. There's just... And, uh, yeah, there's so much that has come off the back of that. And that led to my fiction writing. Do you know, it's... Passion doesn't always have to be positive. I think this is the thing when people say about passion projects. As I hope you'll find out in the episode I'm going to be doing with Danny Molyneux, anger is a great emotion to work with. But you don't always have to put it across as such, which is why I objectified my rants. It didn't have to be ranty. There was a story I could tell there that was from a negative place, but could be a real positive thing. That was a massive lesson for me in my career. Um, and then what that led to, was Arrest All Mimics, which was the name of this podcast way back when. So I've been doing this show now since 2016. And by doing all this lecturing and having this book out, I remember going to see Harry Lyon-Smith, who is still the MD of Illustration X. He's a lovely guy. He's been running the agency for a while now and running it very well. And Harry, like I mentioned at the top of the show, 
and the agency have always been so receptive and encouraging of personal passion projects because they just know the value of it and know how essential it is to keep that work coming in by making work that you care about. And I always remember going in because Illustration X had started the wonderful news section of their website, which is well worth a look, by the way. I'm not just saying that as a sponsor of the show, but it does. it's a nice little peek behind the curtain. And I said to Harry, look, like, how would you feel about me interviewing people off the agency and we'll do some little write-ups in terms of their projects? And he said, I'll be honest, I don't think it needs that on the news section, but I listen to a lot of podcasts and you talk about this stuff a lot, as in creativity. How would you feel about doing a podcast? And I hadn't thought about it. And I don't know why, because I listen to about 20 podcasts a week at the time as well. It's probably about more now. And I love the medium. I've always loved radio. I grew up in a house where my dad had five live football on the radio and there was just a great comfort that I took from it. I remember buying a digital radio when I first moved to Preston and just laying there listening to like six music and Radio 4 late at night, as sad as that is. I just found great comfort in the medium of audio and I used to love just thinking about what the producers were up to while they were recording in the studio and everything else. So when this opportunity got presented to me, I remember Harry saying, well, if you're up for it, go away, have a look. If you think it's possible to do it off your own back, we'll support you, we'll sponsor you to get the equipment, we'll take it from there. And they've been the key supporter of this show ever since, which just, I always have such appreciation of that because I had no experience in broadcasting, hadn't edited a single piece of audio. But I'm very lucky, I live in the digital revolution and there are tutorials left, right and centre. I watched them on YouTube, I learned basics in GarageBand, I bought a Zoom microphone because a guy in the studio opposite mine in London uh, was able to recommend a kind of entry-level good quality microphone and here I am today it's a great outlet it's my way of championing the creative industries and creativity and featuring stories that I feel need to be told um, you know with the sponsorships uh, it's on and off but it's occasionally just a little bit of cost covering income so that I can justify the time to make the show and I love doing it and it varies up the solitary time spent drawing or writing i can go out i can get a coffee or a beer and i can talk to some amazing people and you know look at the chain reaction there it was the i've always kind of had a writer's mind and i realized this recently i've always loved characters and stories and unlikely things happening in my world and i love to feature them and i've always been creating characters and that goes right back to the first story about um mr finity who i called weasel at the time and again i've always done that whether that's because I've always been into like comics and wrestling and I, and I kind of poured that into it. I'm pretty sure, like everything else, it's a nice blend, a cocktail almost, of nature and nurture. But I've always had a writer's mind. And when it comes to like the podcasting medium and the writing, there's just a beautiful biosphere, you know? And I can create graphic novels, which takes you on to the next one. So the Medium Man. Um, the Medium Man was actually shortlisted for the World Illustration awards in i think 2017 and it was a series of single page graphic novels kind of laughing satirical take on the average middle class person and it was a lot of it was from my circumstances and it was very banal and for anybody who read the comic it was just little things like looking down a menu expensive drinks and ordering a tap water or just cancelling on a night out because somebody couldn't be asked midweek. Really simple things like that, but I loved it, and it was a really great way for me to get some narrative into my illustration. And what that led to was my first real piece of crossover work, which was a, a short graphic novel for The Guardian. 
and they did this series called Illustrated Cities where they would hand it over to an illustrator to kind of create their take on a place that means something to them. And I chose Manchester because I was writing a lot this time and I saw things happening. A number of things. And I remember saying to Tash Banks, who commissioned me at the time to do this, to, to, just, to write and to illustrate this graphic novel, I said, look, I, I don't know what I'm going to do yet, but if you trust me, I love Manchester and I'll find a cool angle. So I set off walking around for an afternoon and it was hard to get away from the, the, the scale of the homeless problem at the time. And that's what I did. I created this, um, I think it was 12 illustrations um, in a graphic novel, which was on the website. And it got a lot of feedback mixed because there was, you know, political aspect to it being the homeless problem. And that divided some people. But I love doing work that matters like that. And um, as we speak, that might have brought about a few new opportunities. But I, sometimes it can be quite literal, you know. I created the Medium Man. Somebody saw it, in this case Tash Banks, who was editing the Guardian Cities section at the time. And she went, that's cool. Let's do that. And that was it. And I love that. It can be that direct sometimes. You know, other times it might be a case of the vision. So somebody might have seen some work and gone, do you know what? That might work for something that I'm working on. And what that also led to was my recent zines. So I've got some very limited edition zines. I've got about 25 copies left out of the 100 copies that I did of Elf in the Delph, which was a, a Christmas special about kind of mob mentality and the darkness in suburbia. And also A Wolf in Sports Clothing, which was a, a Zero Hours modern day werewolf story. Uh, and both of those are fully illustrated zines available at bantalonwriter.com. But they came off the back of that. It gave me the confidence in this lovely marriage of image and words, which I'd found a way to be okay at both. And that was this whole new world opened up in front of me off the back of Tasha's opportunity. And it's like, okay, here we go. We're off again. And I just think all of this helps to equip me with the knowledge of the skills, tools and network available to me um, with which to approach new clients and make new opportunities now. So I can go to people and I can uh, make a decision for any given client that I'm approaching, whether I approach them with just my illustration, my hand lettering, my writing or a mix of them to pitch something specific. And I always remember talking to creative director Andy Sandos, who was at Havas at the time, who uh, was a guest on this show as part of a DNAD festival special that I did. And he spoke very lovingly of tech and he said, look, technology is not going to shoot you. He said it is not about having to be proficient or knowing about any programs, but it's about making yourself aware of what's out there because that then equips you to make new ideas and new projects accordingly and I just thought that was some of the best advice I've ever heard and by knowing about you know where my writing and my artwork lives and all these different crossovers it just opens up my world and I'm always looking for collaborations like that so what that took me on to was let me your ear so I had a little break after that from personal projects and I felt a little burned out towards the end of my time in London excuse me coffee and when I moved down there, I met a guy called Andy Cotterill, who was a music photographer. Now, Andy had been working for years with the who's who of music. You name him, Andy's likely worked with them. And he said to me, um, when I went, I went to see him, basically, and a mutual friend had introduced me because I liked the photography on the walls of the Admiral Hardy in Greenwich. There's an image of Jarvis Cocker that I adored. There's a Plan B one. And I can't remember who else was up there. It might have been Dave Grohl. And I pointed them out 
to a friend of mine, Sam Price, who was the art director at the big issue at the time, and Sam said, oh, that's, Cor- that's Coral's work. Um, you know, I'll introduce you if you want. I know you're looking out to use your hand lettering and more things. So I met Andy for a pint, and I remember him saying to me, look, you won't find many photographers who are not precious, but I'm one of them. And I love this, so let's have a talk. Let's, uh, you know, I'll give you some images off my hard drive. And I remember we had a pint. We went back to his house around the corner in Stratford, and he gave me a bunch of images on a hard drive and said, "Just have a play, and we'll see what you know." I can't promise I'll like it or whether it'll work, but do you think? I went away. I did my thing. Five years later, we had a body of about fifty images, collaborative hand lettering, doodled illustration, textures. And Andy's awesome photography as the bedrock. And we put together a show called Lend Me Your Ear, which we did in Covent Garden and in central Manchester as part of the Manchester Design Festival. And it was a celebration of identity, of character, and all these larger than life people who had succeeded because of their unique personality, not in spite of it. And we just wanted to spread that lesson on a mental health level, on a creativity level, on just an enjoying life level and doing your thing, you know? And we did the show. And one of the people who came into that show was Ben Lambert, who was the MD? I can't remember his exact title. A PB Creative, um, and also a creative director who were just around the corner in Covent Garden. And he popped in, and he bought a Damon Albarn print from us. And he said, you've got my cogs turning now. There's something in this style that would work with one of our clients, which is Lynx slash Axe, depending where you're listening from. Uh, you know, the, the body care brand and he just saw something in the energy of that work and a few months later Ben called me up and he said look I've pitched your work to the directors of this project they love it do you want to do a few samples for us so he commissioned me to do a few samples and we ended up working on over 70 variants and it was a global rebrand of Lynx slash Axe's products and it was one of the most creative enjoyable projects I've ever worked on Again, do you know why? Because it was commissioned from something I'd done out of absolute purity. Because I loved the subjects I was working with. And Ben, just as any great creative director does, he managed to pick it up very gently and just nudge it in a subtle, different direction. And he was one of the first people who really pulled the textural aspect out of my work and made it the hero. And I worked with a wonderful design team at PB who brought it to life and put it in place on these packs. And it was the biggest commercial job I've worked on. Um, and I had such great fun. And I'm sure that there'll be a story about what that project brings in when it's ready. But you sometimes just have to be patient. And I remember Andy going away and feeling just a little down because the same thing hadn't happened yet for him. And I remember saying, look, it's about planting seeds. We had a lot of people at that show. It was a busy exhibition. And a lot of people came in over the course of a week. You know, we were Bang Central at the stance shop, which sadly is no longer there in Covent Garden. And... It was only a couple of months ago Andy called me up and he said, look mate, I just wanted to thank you. And I said, why? And he said, I've just shot Idris Elba for the front cover of a a major magazine in the States. And it was off the back of um, your mate, Dave Hilton, who was the creative director at WWE, if you remember me talking about him earlier in this episode. He got in touch and he put me in touch with a creative director who he'd recommended me to. And they chose me out of two different directions. And it's the biggest gig I've had in a while. So you've got to bear in mind, this was about three years after the first exhibition. These things take time. It's about planting seeds, betting on yourself, 
investing and putting it out there. And I say investing because it cost Andy and I about two and a half grand each to finance this exhibition for the printing, for, you know, all the costs involved, the travel down from Manchester where I was living by the time we actually got our house together and um, did an exhibition. But it, it's for me to see that come back to Andy like that was a huge buzz. I was like, yes, that's what I'm talking about. And it's not just about that. It's about the kudos and it's about being seen doing the cool projects as well, you know. Because when you're doing a cool thing with passion and you're putting it out there, it exhibits confidence that you're betting on yourself, that you believe in what you're doing. And people buy into that. They want to be a part of it. That's why we ended up getting Stance as a venue for free. And I can't thank Stance enough because they support a lot of cool creative projects. You know, they're a um, skater brand, socks primarily, but they support loads of cool things like Bike Storms. Now, I'm hoping to get Mac, Mac Ferrari on the show who founded Bike Storms. It's a wonderful, wonderful project um, supporting young people who've had a rough start through the whole Bike Storms you know, movement, getting out there on the streets and riding and pulling wheelies, and it's just such an awesome project. But... They support things to Stance and they supported Bike Storms and they supported us and I can't thank them enough because it brought me my biggest commercial project to date. And don't get me wrong, we were out of pocket, we felt gutted, we were going, oh God, I don't know if we can afford this, it, you know, it, it needs to bring something back. And it took a little time for Andy, but he got there and I'm sure it'll happen again too. So fast forward to lockdown in 2020. Um, and this is the last one on the list for the time being because this kind of brings you up to the current but like I mentioned, writing champagne and wax crayons. I'm currently working on my second non-fiction book with a which is a monster, and it's called, you guessed it, the Creative Condition. Um, and it is about what this show is about, which is a deep dive into creativity and its behaviour and its nature. But what happened was we went into lockdown. I was only two months into being a twin parent. This was scary stuff. This was unprecedented. And at first, it felt like one big snow day, except people were dying. You know, this was this was. I don't know if you remember those early days, but they felt so surreal just sitting there watching the news and watching the little red breaking news banner coming up with the death count and going, what is going on? You know, I've never known a pandemic. There was SARS and that came pretty close. But this is fucking terrifying, you know, especially with two small babies in there and the cots in the middle of the living room taking naps. And I found myself in this very frayed, sleep-deprived state of mind. But with that came a certain... What's the word? There was a certain apathy. No, apathy is the wrong word. I was totally relaxed. I was fuzzy. I was tired. I was in love with these new babies. And what I did was I used the notes on my phone to just write little things, little moments, because I felt like I had to retain some part of my creativity during um, paternity leave and then the, you know, the early stages of parenthood, which was just so all-encompassing that I... You know, creativity is everything to me. It's why I've done over 180 episodes of this show and why I continue to do this stuff. And then when the pandemic happened, it was like, God, the observations I was making about how people were responding to it and the uncertainty going on. And what I did was I started, it actually started on Facebook of all places. I started doing these little two or three line stings and they were like observations of how people were uh, going into like DIY overdrive or gardening overdrive and little observations about what that meant and how people were kind of very quietly cracking up or on the edge and it became this book called Isolation Watch which was my fiction debut full title was Isolation Watch Falling Apart in the Pandemic and it was kind of I used my neighbourhood 
to create this broader fictional take on what was happening to people in lockdown. And it became my first book. It was out only as an ebook. You can actually get it for free as we speak if you go and sign up for my newsletter over at bentallandwriter.com. But I love that book. And the reviews are very, very positive and, and it set the tone for my fiction work. And off the back of that, also within this same period of early uh, parenthood, I also wrote Your Mum and Other Stories from the Back Streets of Britain, which was a very small, limited run print book of 21 short fiction slash creative non-fiction stories. Each one is illustrated and each one is based around an item of commonly found British street furniture. So knackered hubcap, cigarette butt, beer can, um, you know, condom, all the stuff that anyone who spent any time on British streets will have recognised. And the creativity that I found by using each of those objects as an anchor point to then just spring off it and write, sometimes a quite literal story, but other times a really quite creative fictional story. So, for example, the, the story about the murder, the, sorry, I'm spoiling there, glove on a fence. I'm sure you've all seen that, just a random glove left out on a fence. And I wrote this story about Donna, who was a true crime addict, and she, you know, she thought that this glove, you know, this leather glove, it could only belong to a murderer. Maybe I'm about to find my first body. Really dark stuff. But that's the time we were in, in lockdown, and that's how I was responding. And that book, I ended up getting Sean Ryder involved because I was walking my dog with his wife and Sean himself at the time. And, you know, I mentioned it to them. And I remember Joanne, who manages Happy Mondays and Sean's creative work. She said, look, if we can help in any way, give me a shout. And very accidentally, I ended up with Sean doing some guest dialogue on my book trailer, which is beyond my wildest dreams. Um, and it was, you know, this was, I, I published this stuff indie. So I was able, I had the freedom to make a book trailer with Sean Ryder animated and um, I learned some lessons about the traditional publishing model and I wanted to try the indie route, which is currently where I'm still publishing my work. And I learned some very rudimentary animation skills by putting that trailer together. And once again, this project that was accidental, but I loved, became a vehicle to learn far more skills. And now I can make GIFs and now I can export these short videos and now I know how to animate my line drawing and it's like the, the wheels just keep turning. Um, and I love it and I will always be doing some kind of personal passion project. Currently as we speak I'm, I'm, I'm doing a new project based on the um, climate emergency and the environment. You know I'm sitting talking to you right now in my studio and I am sweating. I have got a right bead on. And it's scary. Again, my kids are two and a half now, and it's pretty terrifying time, so I'm trying to channel that fear to protect my own mental health, to do something about the problem we're all facing, to try and use visual communication, to spread the word, and that's where you find me. Um, I love personal passion projects. Like I said, I'm going to be talking to Danielle Molyneux, founder and owner of Studio Dotto this Friday about her own kind of activism and personal work. It's something I will always be covering moving forward. I certainly believe this is the time to, to use our voice, to get aggro, to speak up, to use visual communication, to communicate and collaborate with others and form a movement because we need it. We're being abused by the government who are not doing anything about the climate emergency or they're just ticking boxes and the corporations are greenwashing. But that's a rant for another day. But if you feel as passionate as I do, get up and do something. You know, you might only scratch the surface of that cause. But like I said earlier in the show, I'm just one person. What can I do? Said 7 billion people. What a piece of graffiti and what a game changer for someone who sees that like myself. So I want to do my bit. 
And I just think personal passion projects have to be something that come from your personality and they do it for you and you want to get out of bed to do it and you want to finish your day job because you want to get in your studio and do it. There's no better energy than that for me in this creative industry. So go back and listen to 147 and 148 number episodes if you want more because I broke down about 40 different personal projects by other people. This is my story. That's my thread. I hope it makes sense and I hope it will inspire you to go and do your own thing. And then, do you know what? Just as a final note, because I think sometimes the comments that you get on that is kind of, oh God, but you know, I never have any time. So during early parenthood, a friend of mine you know, we had a big chat. We were both new parents and he said he was feeling a little down because he was loving parenthood, but he felt guilty about deviating from that to do any creative work. And he felt like he'd surrendered a part of him, which was my very motivation for keeping my writing going. And what I found was it really helped if I kept a list, a tiered list of activities that I could be doing creatively, no matter what time I had. So if I had 10 minutes on the bus or if I had a full day in the studio, I had a list of tasks that I could choose the most appropriate task according to my energy and the time I had to work on it. And what that meant was, let's say I had an action-packed weekend, and any, any other parents who are listening to this will probably know just how time poor we are on those weekends or school holidays. Um, but you can always have a list. You can. I wrote most of your mum an isolation watch on the toilet and on the dog walk because I just didn't have any other time to do it. But I needed it for my own mental health. I needed to have my creative outlet. And I found that even just one good line written in the notes app on my phone or scribbled on the back of whatever piece of paper was lying around in the kitchen was enough to feel like I'd done something for me that day and I could then detach from that guilt and go and just be an awesome dad or a shit dad. Depends how you catch me, depends how tired I am. <laughs> but I just wanted to end it on that note. There is always time, there are always ways. And I think you just have to structure your activities accordingly. I hope that's been of some use. Forgive me for the autonomous episode, but I wanted to pull the lovely thread that I noticed when I was writing The Creative Condition about the value of personal projects and share it with you guys so that there might be some value. Thank you for listening. Thank you so much to my sponsor, Illustration X, as I mentioned in the episode, they've been there since the beginning. I hope they're going to stay with me for a long while. We're doing this together. We're doing it a lot. I'm going to start doing more and more and championing creativity. If you want to be on the show, don't be afraid to hit me up. If you want to suggest a guest, please do. Please do. I had a guest uh, suggested this very morning. He's on my list of people to hit up. So there you go. Nice one, guys. Hit me up on the social, at Ben Talon. I'm on all the major platforms. Also, at Ben Talon Pod on Twitter and Instagram. Have an awesome day. Catch you very soon.